Thanks for joining our Dialing Into Your Best Dairy, a podcast series brought to you by dairy educators with Cornell University. In this series, we'll be walking through a cow's life cycle to pinpoint best management practices to maximize each cow's genetic potential in your herd. Welcome to the next episode in our Cornell Cooperative Extension podcast series. In this episode, we'll be talking about ventilation and heat abatement, as well as management through lactation and time budgets. We'll also hear from a producer on facility design highlights from a recent barn project. Hi, I am Betsy Hicks, a regional dairy educator with Cornell Cooperative Extension. Here with me are two other regional dairy educators, Margaret Quasdorf and Dave Belbian. Dave's going to start us off with some key points on ventilation and heat abatement. Hey Dave, uh, what are some key points dairy producers need to keep in mind with ventilation and heat stress in lactating dairy cows? Well, thanks very much for that introduction, Betsy. Producers need to think about ventilation and heat abatement kind of as two separate issues. Ventilation basically is something that we think about from a standpoint of removing and replacing that contaminated air in the barn with fresh air, not only for the cows, but for the people. And that's something that we need to consider year round. Heat stress abatement is basically alleviating the negative effects of overheating uh, with these cows. Our dairy cattle can handle cold really well as long as they have a clean, dry place to be, to lay down, and they have no drafts on them. Heat stress is really the biggest challenge that we have. And uh, when these cows are really challenged with uh, lots of heat and humidity, it lowers their dry matter intake, which of course lowers milk production, causes problems as far as reproductive performance is concerned, and also causes increased lameness. One of the things that uh, I guess I like to think about how we look at this from a standpoint of heat stress abatement is using a, a tool called the temperature humidity index. Uh, and you can find this online. It's a kind of a neat little chart, but it's a common measure that's used to determine heat stress. It combines temperature and humidity. And we all know that at the same temperature, just from our own personal experiences, when it's really humid, we feel a lot more uncomfortable than when the air is really dry. And cows feel the same thing. So Using that temperature humidity index, which from now on I'm going to call it THI, we can determine what kind of stress load these cows are under. We know from experience and research that high producing cows are stressed when the THI is above 68, which really isn't that high. So an example of that, to give you that number of THI of 68, is basically a 74 degree Fahrenheit temperature at a 30% relative humidity and that equals a THI of 68, which I think a lot of people would say, gee, that's not all that bad, but our high producing cows are, are really begin to get affected uh, when we hit that THI of 68. And our higher producers actually generate a lot more body heat than lower or kind of modest producers. If you look at a cow producing 80 pounds of milk, she produces 148,700 uh, more BTUs, which is British thermal units per day than a 30-pound cow. So just to give you an idea uh, of what you could kind of maybe compare that to to give you a, a reference point is that one gallon of heating oil or diesel fuel has a BTU potential of 139,000 BTUs. So that's pretty close to the difference between a 30-pound producer and an 80-pound producer. So roughly, 
If we had 180 pound producers and we compared them to 130 pound producers, those high producers would generate as much additional heat in a day to be equivalent to 100 gallons of heating oil or diesel fuel. Just think about that. That's pretty amazing. It is, Dave. It, I've never thought of it and putting it in a BTU frame of mind. I mean, we talk to people all the time that cows are walking around with furnaces for rumens, and really they are. When you put it on that scale, it really is mind-boggling. So with all that heat produced, what can producers do to help their cows? Well, uh, lots of different things. So we think about the summertime. That's kind of when we have the greatest stress. But we want to limit that radiant heat gain by reducing sun exposure. And of course, our barns naturally do that by creating shade. Uh, insulated barns uh, help to reduce that radiant heat load even more. And we think about how this air moves. Hot air rises just like it does in a chimney. Uh, in our freestall barns, we can use that to our advantage by using natural ventilation, bringing fresh air in from open sidewalls, ends of the barn, open doors, and exiting it through an open ridge. Even in the winter, we need to do this at some minimal level to provide ventilation. Remember, we need to get that stale, contaminated air out of the barn, even in the wintertime. We also can use fans to carry away heat from the cow's body. Axial fans can help supplement the air exchange, direct airflow to match up to the natural outside air movement. It directs the airflow to match up the outside natural air movement. We need to be sure that they're operating parallel to the feeding area and the stall rows. We need to think about the kind of fans that we use from the standpoint of the quality. I've seen people buy really inexpensive fans and over time they don't perform quite as well. Uh, we, want to, we want fans that have shrouds around them, that have guards on them, and that have blade material that's not going to tend to straighten out over time. It's got to continue to perform over a number of years. We want to mount them high enough to avoid interference with equipment. Uh, and the rule of thumb to mounting these fans for the feed area and a single row of stalls is to space them 10 feet apart for every one foot of fan diameter. So a three foot diameter fan would need to be 30 feet apart and point the fans directly to the air, uh, directly underneath the fan, under the next fan that's in line. Some people install these overhead high volume, low speed fans that blow air directly downward and they can help to stir the air and make the animals more comfortable in that area. But the one thing you need to think about is that they don't help or assist in air exchange. They just stir the air. Holding areas are a real priority area for fans. So that should be one of the first areas that people ought to think about. Sprinkler systems are, are another strategy that uh, people often use. The intermittent wetting and drying of the cow's skin, it must be used with fans. You need to be careful. I've seen over the years some situations where cows got so wet that water was dripping off their teats and caused mastitis problems. So cows need to be wet, but you need to be careful on how you operate it. Sprinklers immediately lower respiration rates. Uh, you need a significant amount of water. You've got to monitor and maintain the systems. And again, holding areas are a real high priority area. Tunnel ventilation is another area that people have looked at and actually installed in freestall barns. Uh, it's certainly possible. To use tunnel ventilation, there are certainly some issues and things you need to think about. And I guess I would say uh, we have some references in Pro Dairy. There's actually a paper that's uh, really good on tunnel ventilation and freestall barns by Kurt Gooch and Michael Timmons. So that's something to take a look at. Lots of great information you've got there, Dave. So when we think about this with producers, 
When a producer is thinking about building a new barn or evaluating an existing barn, what should they look at? Well, we're often dealing with older buildings that oftentimes have some limitations, but we can make modifications to improve them. And things you need to think about with new buildings and how we might be able to incorporate these into our older buildings is the orientation of the building. North-south north, with uh, wind coming from the west is going to give us our maximum uh, amount of outside air coming into that barn. What we call separation distance. Uh, in other words, we don't want buildings so close together that one building basically blocks the airflow from another. Sidewall height for our lactating cows. Uh, new buildings, we like to see 14 to 16 foot sidewalls. And the sidewall openings, one thing I would say, and this sometimes happens with older barns, is to be sure that the curtains are open at the cow level. I've seen situations where old barns structurally were built where the curtains came down and they didn't come down right in front of the cow when she was laying down. Above her back when she was laying, we felt the air, but not to the cow's face. The ridge opening is important. Two to three inches per 10 foot of uh, building width is a guideline with 12 inches minimum. Gable openings that are adjustable in the winter and summer, end wall openings, and of course, the wider the building, the more of a challenge uh, that uh, causes us from the standpoint of bringing in fresh air. So anyway, lots of things to think about. So now I want to introduce uh, Margaret Quasdorf. She's going to talk about uh, some considerations for management through lactation and time budgets. And uh, I'll ask her to give us some key points about managing these cows through lactation. Margaret? Yeah, thanks, Dave. Um, it's so important to watch our cows, analyze the data they generate, and listen to what they're telling us. When we're talking about managing our way through a successful lactation, rumination and activity tracking technology can definitely be advantageous tools, along with the ability to track individual cow production. These systems almost give the cow an opportunity to talk to us about how she's feeling, when she's ready to be bred, how the diet is performing, and how consistent we are. So in a large study that included 47 genetically similar dairy herds in Spain, each of these farms fed the same total mix ration, but the difference between these farms is that some farms milked and produced 30 pounds per day more than other farms. And what they found out was that 56% of the variation in milk yield between these different farms was actually attributed to the management. So what that means is that we as dairy farm managers and employees who work with cows each day have a huge opportunity to influence and the ultimate responsibility in helping these girls reach that potential. So um, let's start by going over a typical time budget of a dairy cow in a freestyle environment. She's going to spend about five hours per day eating, 12 to 14 hours per day resting, Two to three hours per day, she's going to spend standing, walking around, grooming, and just hanging out with other cows. Half an hour, she'll probably spend drinking, and that leaves two and a half to three and a half hours to do what we're asking her to do. And that mainly is milking, but that's also being locked up for vet check, possibly being pushed out of the pen to clean the stalls, or routine maintenance like hoof trimming. So Margaret, what, what are some of the typical ways that, that we, as producers, managers, employees, disturb these cows' time budget? Yeah, so um, there's a lot of ways that we might not always think about, but when they 
when they add up, they can definitely take away from the cow's time to be as productive and efficient as she can be. So some of these things that we're doing to uh, disturb her time budget is creating excessive time out of the pen. So whether it's cows waiting too long in a holding area or possibly they're stuck in return alleys too long before someone lets them back to the pen, that could contribute to excessive time out of pen. If we've had cows locked up for more than an hour a day in headlocks, possibly doing vet check, that takes away from their time budget. Um, we're disturbing them sometimes if we've had cows stay in pens for a short duration of time. So typically we're thinking about our fresh cows here. Um, where this gets us in trouble is that uh, when we regroup these cows and if we do it too often, we're asking the cows to establish a social pecking order again and to, to find her place in that new pen. And that takes up uh, valuable time where she should be resting and eating and producing milk and feeling comfortable. Another reason why we might be disturbing these cows in their time budget is having stalls that are uncomfortable. If it takes a while for her to find a comfortable place to lay down, or if there's not enough stalls to lay down in, she might not rest as long as she should. Another reason why we might disturb her time budget is inadequate feed availability. Again, if we are not distributing feed along the headlocks and have it available and pushed up and ready for the cows when she wants it, we're cutting into her eating time and that usually takes away from her resting time or other, other areas in her time budget. Again, um, we talked about, and Dave just talked about, inadequate heat stress abatement. If cows are spending too much time standing around because they're too hot to lay down, that's going to cut into their resting time. And also the social stress of mixing first lactation animals with mature animals in the same pen causes them to spend more time figuring out that social hierarchy and also maybe spending more time thinking about how quickly they have to move from one resource to another to avoid a more mature cow. So we can use these ideas to think about your own farm and decide where you can make small changes that might make a big difference to your cows. Hopefully you'll see a positive milk response when you change your management strategy to allow for appropriate resting time. Because in the end, cows will actually choose resting time over anything else if given the choice. So if she has to make the choice between eating and resting, she's gonna go and rest. And that may cut into your milk production because she's not eating as much. So we often hear people talk a lot about first lactation cows and how we can handle those, those animals differently. So, so what about these first lactation cows? Yeah, so many first calf heifers or first lactation cows have a hard time reaching their genetic potential when they're forced to compete with older cows for resources. Some studies say that in mixed pens, first calf heifers consume 10% less feed spend 20% less time lying down and produce 10% less milk than when they're grouped in their own pens with their peers. So, you know, less eating and drinking and competing for resources along with the social stress leads to lower components and up to 500 pounds less milk during their lactation than their counterparts housed away from mature cows. They may also have negative impacts to average daily gain in their growth rate to maturation and um, may also suffer from increased social stress. Overcrowding also furthers this issue. There was another study that said first calf heifers produce 21 pounds less milk than their mature counterparts 
um, when they were housed at a stocking density of 131% versus only six pounds less when they were housed with mature cows at a stocking density of 100%. In order to maximize the efficiency and genetic potential of our cows, it's important to minimize and manage the stress surrounding our cows. Like Dave said, ventilation and cooling are important and paired with proper stocking density for resting and eating space, along with good fly control, noise control, and low stress handling, we can accomplish a lot on our way to the goal of high producing, healthy and efficient herd. And we have some really great resources linked to this podcast concerning training employees on proper animal handling, as well as other resources when it comes to managing our lactation cows, our lactating cows. So make sure you check those out. And now we're going to hear from Betsy, who has some questions for a dairy producer who recently built a new facility for his lactating cows. Thanks, Margaret. With us is Paul Fouts, a dairy farmer from central New York who recently did a new barn project. Paul, can you tell us a little bit about your farm and that project that you've got going on? Um, yeah, we have a 600 cow dairy farm here in Cortland, New York. Um, and we uh, last year built a three row barn for that we have our first calf heifers in. We have a similar three row barn that we've been working out of for the last 10 years or so, and then there's some older barns beyond that. Great. Can you tell me some things you did differently with a new barn design compared to the older barn? Things that maybe you changed or you made better and why? Okay, they're, they're both three row barns. There's stalls along the outer wall. Well, the older barn is eight feet. Uh, the beds are eight feet to, to the outside wall. In the newer barn, we made that a little bit longer, so it's nine and a half feet. The alleyway where the cows are standing to eat in the older barn is 12 feet, and we made that 14. Um, and the crossover alleys in the older barn were 12 feet wide. These uh, in the new barn are 16 feet. So we made all those changes in the um, intention of giving the cows more room to maneuver. Uh, so when the cow, when there's cows up eating, there's room for two-way traffic behind them. And same when they're drinking water. The waters in the new barn, we put in 14-foot waters to get four inches of water space per cow. In the older barn, we had eight-foot waters. And um, we noticed that the waters in the new barn were actually staying cleaner. And so we took all those eight-foot water fountains out and put in 14s. So they have four inches of water space in the older barn now too. We had brisket boards in the older barn and we had noticed that they were um, getting some injuries on their front legs because of those. So we had taken those out. So when we built the new barn, we did not put any brisket boards in. So far, I don't see any reason to have brisket boards at all. That's amazing. Those are some really great changes you've done. So you're addressing cow comfort and injuries and also thinking about cow flow thinking about how cows can get to the feed bunk and around the pen and then increasing water. I mean, you addressed a lot of things in that new design. Was there anything you kept the same from a past facility design? Well, they're both three row barns. So they both have 18 feet to the eaves. So they're very tall barns. Mm -hmm. um, one thing that we are going to be experimenting with is the ventilation. Uh, in the older barn, all the fans are blowing, so it's blowing from one end of the barn to the other. Um, we're going to experiment with this new barn blowing from one side to the other rather than from one end to the other. We haven't done that yet. Shortly, we'll be putting in fans in one section of it 
Uh, we're going to take a 72 foot section of it and um, experiment with it and see whether we want to blow from side to side or from one end to the other. That's really interesting. So in terms of like cow comfort and efficiency and things we're talking about in this podcast, how do you see the cows responding to these changes? It might be too early to tell. And we noticed fountains that they stayed cleaner. So we'll hopefully, uh, we'll hopefully see a milk production response. Right now it's too early to tell what the results are going to be. But basically, I mean, we've talked before, cows are more comfortable. They can get up easier. They're just doing their thing, right? Yeah. Yep. And we, uh, one thing we've also noticed is that the, with the wider alleyways, the manure is not as deep. We clean out the same amount of times a day, but the, the manure is not as quite as deep. So the cows are cleaner. That should help out with semantic cell and um, uh, that sort of thing too. Yeah. We also talked earlier about those wider alley on the feed alley side. It does make moving cows around a little bit more challenging, right? Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, so that was a unintended consequence, I guess, of something we didn't think about. In the older barn, uh, we have the 12-foot alleyways, as I said, and the new, the newer one, we have 14-foot uh, alleyways. And one thing that we noticed is that it, when you're trying to sort one or two cows out, it's a lot more difficult to do, is that they have a lot more room to, to move around. Um, which is good when you just want them to be able to move around. But when you're trying to get them from, from point A to point B, um, it does make it a little bit more challenging. Something we, we did not think about at the time, but we know that now. Not that I would do it different. I just have to, you have to realize that the more room you give them, the harder it is to control them. Right. Really focusing on how your movements affect how cows move and, and working with employees on learning that skill, right? Right. You have to anticipate their movements a little bit more now. Right. Yeah, that's that's great observation. Um, Paul, I want to talk a little bit about first calf heifers. Um, I love this story. You guys changed your grouping strategy in terms of first calf heifers a few years ago. Can you walk us through what happened when you decided to group those heifers in a separate pen? Yeah, so we um, noticed off of our um, milk production records that the first calf heifers were not performing uh, the way they should. They were not peaking high enough and their milk production was not where, compared to the older cows, it was not where it should be. All we had was a fresh cow group and a high group and a low group and all the lactations were together in, you know, within each of those um, groups. So what we did one day is we went and put in two gates in, it was the high group, separated the first calf heifers out so they, the first calf heifers were in their own group uh, and the older cows were in the other. So they had the same feed, the same stalls, same number of stalls per cow. Uh, it's even the same feed bunk space per cow, I believe. And literally overnight, our entire herd production per day uh, went up five pounds per cow. So the amount that the first calf heifers went up must have been traumatic because it, that was over the entire herd. So, and that was literally overnight. That's, that's just crazy. I, I don't think that anybody would anticipate that happening. So, um, no, <laughs> it's kind of crazy. Not, not that dramatic. My last question for you, what advice would you give to other producers who are thinking about changing their grouping strategies? Well, to begin with, make sure you consult with your nutritionist, definitely nutritionist and probably your veterinarian to make sure everybody's on the same page. One thing you got to make sure you 
figure out is cow traffic flow to and from the milking parlor and wherever else you need to go, that you're not making animals stand longer than they should. So traffic flow, when you, when you change grouping, the traffic flow gets changed as well. Uh, so you got to make sure you think all that through where, how are we going to get cows to point A to point B without disturbing others and uh, without requiring a lot of labor. Right. Um, so those are things you, you need to think through. Yeah. And sometimes it's not as simple as you might want to, to work through. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, we ended up putting a laneway along the edge of the barn so we can uh, uh, leapfrog ground groups. That was a big improvement. Uh, we were cutting through groups and that, so cows had a stand um, while other cows came through and it was not very good. So once we got that laneway along the edge of the barn, that really improved things. That's great. You guys have really thought a lot about how to improve cow flow and improve the experience for each group of cows. So I really commend you for that. So I want to thank you for agreeing to speak with us today and thank you for sharing your experiences. Thank you. This podcast has been presented by Regional Dairy Educators with Cornell Cooperative Extension and Pro Dairy. Thank you.